Birders know that Smithsonian Certified Bird-Friendly Coffee is one of the best ways to help neotropical migratory birds and local coffee farmers. And now, it's a great way to help the American Birding Association, too. For the month of July, new ABA members will get a free 12-ounce bag of our Smithsonian Certified Songbird Coffee with their membership. Your choice of roast, your choice of grind. We even have decaf. No judgment here. Join the ABA. Get a free bag of Songbird Coffee. Available for a limited time. Restrictions may apply. Get more information at aba.org slash coffee promo. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is a relatively slow time of the year for birding. Maybe the great pause before the southbound migration starts to heat up again. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly looking forward to that. We are on the cusp of shorebird migration here at the beginning of July in the Northern Hemisphere. Bird researchers, however, have had a pretty eventful week as the American Ornithological Society held their annual meeting this year in San Juan, Puerto Rico, with Birds Caribbean. I certainly enjoyed seeing all the bird researchers that I follow on social media doing their bird science thing and frequently enjoying a lot of birding on the island. 17 endemics, including a toady, a lizard cuckoo, and the adorably named Elfin Woods Warbler. Puerto Rico certainly boasts some of the best birding in the Caribbean, and strictly speaking, it is part of the United States. It is also a great time for me, even though I did not attend, to cast about for potential guests on the podcast. You know I love young researchers talking birds here. And I know I have some listeners among the attendees last week. So I'm asking you, humble friend of the podcast, that if you saw or heard anything particularly cool being shared at AOS this year, drop me a line at podcast.aba.org. Hit me on Twitter at ABA or at Nate Swick. That's in eight Swick. Put me in contact. I'm always looking for podcast content. And in the past, I've actually gotten some good stuff from friends who have sent cool bird research my way. Um, thanks in advance. On to the show. We'll just uh, cut straight to the chase. It's another meeting of the American Birding Podcast Birding Book Club. Donna Shulman and Frank Izagiri, once again, join me to talk about our favorite bird reference books. Looking to build out your birding library? Have we got some suggestions for you? All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of June, very beginning of July 2022. Lots to talk about this week, pretty much entirely centered on the upper Midwest, Michigan, to be precise. It has been a big week for the Great Lakes State. Let's start with the most exciting one, the potential first ABA area record of Southern Lapwing, at an airfield in Iosco County on the shore of Lake Huron that was first reported to the birding world this past week, but has been present, according to airfield workers, since late May. Southern Lapwing is a large plover that is widespread throughout South America and increasingly Central America as well. That's worth a note in and of itself, as this species has been on the short list of potential new ABA area birds for a couple decades now because of its rapid range expansion northward. In recent years, southern lapwing has bred as far north as southern Mexico and shows no signs of slowing down. It is not my intention to put my finger on the scale here because the providence of the bird is still to be determined. It was at an airfield. Plane assistance is not a completely impossible scenario, though to be fair, airfield is about as typical a habitat as one could expect 
with this species. How many birders got their life for southern lapwing while taxiing on the runway in Panama City or Bogota or Quito? And if you're looking at this site from the bird's perspective, it's a big grassy area surrounded by a lot of forest on the shores of a massive body of water that the bird likely can't see the far shore of. It's just going to put down at the first open, grassy place it can find. And just to continue to stoke this bonfire, there are at least two previous ABA area sightings of southern lapwing, one from Maryland and one from the Florida panhandle that may very well have represented naturally occurring birds, but were denied acceptance due to provenance concerns. I have no idea what is going to happen with this bird, but a lot of folks have seen it and it does pose some fun questions. Michigan did not stop there, though. A few days later, a red cockaded woodpecker was photographed in Muskegon County, another state first, but interestingly enough, not the only Great Lakes record. There was another one in Illinois in 2000, and this species famously disperses post-breeding, though usually not this far. And just to move from the realm of unbelievable to absolutely ridiculous, just the other day, a common red shank was discovered at Point Mui and Monroe County. This is not only a first Michigan record, but a first for the United States. All previous ABA area records, about six or so of them, have come from Newfoundland. It's a little surprising that there are so few, as the species does breed in Iceland, uh, but this is a pretty clear case of mirror image error. Uh, common red shanks overwinter in southern Europe, northern Africa, which is about the same latitude as southern Michigan. But still, after all that stuff, no limpkin for Michigan yet. And those weren't the only first to report as Yukon Territory makes news for the third consecutive week as the territory's first record of American bittern was discovered near Carcross. I feel like that would have been a much bigger deal if Michigan had not sucked all the air out of the rare bird world this week. Those are the rarities for this week, certainly not all of them. Uh, but for the full accounting, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news and discussion in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. Birders love bird books, and we here at the American Birding Podcast love to get together to discuss bird books in the Birding Book Club segment. I am joined once again by Donna Shulman from the website 10,000 Birds. And for the second week in a row, Birding Magazine's Frank Izagiri. Welcome to you both. Excited to talk bird books with you. Hey, everybody. Hi, guys. <laughs> yeah, so we have an interesting topic uh, today, one that I've kind of been hoping to get to for a while. And that is essentially best reference guides. Uh, and you could say, uh, well, Nate, that's, that's pretty much every bird book. Uh, but the idea here is that we are not talking about field guides or other kind of general identification guides. Uh, but the sorts of books that every birder should have on their bookshelf, sort of a bookshelf filler if you're building a birding library. And I think if I read our um, sort of pre-discussion emails correctly, that, that that means something slightly different to each of us, even if we have a little bit of overlap in our choices. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw this out to you both. How did you both interpret this question of books that every birder should have on their shelves? I initially did a librarian perspective um, understandably as if i was building a birding collection uh how what what books would i include and that means looking at the whole field of birding from mm -hmm. history to identification to culture and picking the best from each subcategory so i actually sent nate and frank um nine categories but they told me <laughs> i had to cut it down to five <laughs> Yeah. And and then but then I intersected that with books that 
I personally use. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit of both. How about you, Frank? So I, I got a lot of books off my bookshelf. And when I started seeing <laughs> your guys's lists or preliminary lists, I, I, there was a lot of overlap. There are a lot of the same books. But the, the way I sort of deviated is that I decided that the main books that I wanted to focus on for myself are the ones that have like kind of like brought me the most happiness over the course of my life and birding career, so to speak. Um, some of them are newer and are really up to you know up to date, but a, a few of them are are definitely outdated. Um, but they really influenced me, and so I thought that would be kind of fun to talk about. So I did sort of like willfully and knowingly deviate from from our initial prompt that mm -hmm. I agreed to, insubordinately perhaps. But yeah, um, we'll never yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess I had the most pragmatic. <laughs> approach to this. It was basically books that I that I use, like books that I have over the years found invaluable in furthering my own birding knowledge. Um, not necessarily over the years. A couple of my books are are actually quite recent. Yeah. Um, one in particular. But mm -hmm. um just just books that I I enjoyed, I like, I've used, I I I don't know, like stuff that I've gotten information from, stuff that I've needed. Maybe that's a good way to put it. I have a few family specific guides that I we you know we I know we decided we decided early on to kind of, you know, push those off to the side unless they are really good. And um, I had a couple of those early on and then I decided to just forget it and just go with, they're not necessarily all identification guides, though there are, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, a couple that definitely go kind of into the weeds. But for the most part, they're, they're books that I like, books that I have. I'm, I'm excited to talk about these with you, what, what we like about them, um, how we've used them. And of course, Donna, um, you know, how you would build a great birding library if you're developing your birding library i think you also need to keep in mind money and space sure um, yes and i i realized a couple of the the titles i have down are fairly expensive but mm -hmm. i i went and checked and you can get a lot of expensive books much more cheaply you know through the secondhand sellers online and that goes for out of print books too i don't know if any of our choices are out of but there are some really good out of print reference books around. Yeah, interestingly enough, I know the three of us do, you know, get books from from book publishers to, for review or for you know whatever. All the books that I have on my list are books that I have purchased. So that I think that does mean something when you are a book reviewer and you're getting books uh, frequently. Like my bookshelf is groaning with books <laughs> that I've received. But the ones that I purchased myself because I wanted or I needed them are ones that, I don't know, they hold a, kind of a special place in my mm -hmm. library. I hadn't thought of this before, but there's actually two major bird book sellers that I believe have big um, sales on, going on right Yo. now. One is Princeton mm -hmm. and the other yeah, one Princeton is does um, frequently. NHBS, mm -hmm. Natural History Book Service, which is like a UK-based bookseller. So since this is going to be published fairly soon, for listeners, check to see those uh, publishers might still have those sales going on. I can never get this information in the magazine. I would like to get it to our members. Yeah, so for anyway, sure. If you'd like to predict that. it a little bit, following Princeton and, and all those booksellers on uh, their social media accounts, you usually yes. get a little bit of a heads up on on when they're doing their big book sales. And you can get a ton of books for good prices. Oh, um, yes. Then you run into the problem of space, as Don, <laughs> as Don has, which is another issue I have. That's when we go into the ebook. That's right. <laughs> 
uh, like the feel of paper in my hands for, the, for a lot of these. I, and, I forget uh, one, which one in particular. Books, yeah, I forget which books I have on ebook because they're not in front of me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, let's talk about these books that we enjoy. Um, I don't know if you want to go in any particular order, or do you just want to grab a book from your from your list and uh, let's talk about it. Yeah, I'll just do a random one. Um, one that I one book that I really love that uh, it is the first version of it. It's kind of came out a while ago now. I first um, learned about the book. I, think, I guess that must have been 2005. I was in uh, undergraduate. Is uh, the Neotropical Companion, and there's mm. a fairly new version of it called the new neotropical companion it's by john kreicher who has uh reviewed for for and also been interviewed in birding magazine and on the podcast um, oh that's right <laughs> yeah a while ago about that cool well anyway it's it's a really wonderful book it's a great primer for learning a lot about birds the you know obviously the birds of the neotropics are Birding there is is overwhelming. It's it's really wonderful, mm-hmm. but it's challenging, uh, and you can learn a lot about the different habits of birds and other wildlife. And there's just really it's a really nice introduction in book form to that kind of birding and that kind of natural history exploration. So mm-hmm. that was a book that influenced me a lot. I got it before I studied abroad in Costa Rica and really read it page to page and refer to it somewhat frequently. Um, so that's that's a really wonderful one to have if you have any interest in the neotropics, whether you're planning to travel there or not. You can learn a lot about ABA area birds, too. You know, I read the first version of um, Neotropical Companion before my very first trip to the neotropics. Mm-hmm. And it was just I mean, it's just amazing. You, it's just an eye opening because, as you say, Frank, the neotropics can be the tropics just in general can be overwhelming. And having someone like John Kreicher, it feels like he's kind of there as a guide and showing you like what you should focus on and what you should, um, what, sh- what is important. It's fantastic. It's just really splits that fine line between academia and popular science writing just yes. really well. He's good it's at a that. tried and true book. It, it sure. grew out of this little pamphlet that he mm-hmm. wrote decades ago. So when you're in primary rainforest for the first time and a big mixed flock comes of many different tanagers and other birds, and you're completely unable to identify almost any of them because you get <laughs> don't get a good look, you won't feel as bad because John will have prepared you emotionally. <laughs> emotionally. <laughs> if not, if not, yeah, exactly. If not ornithologically. Yeah. <laughs> so that really is a special one. Absolutely. Yeah. Great book. Great choice for that one. Yeah. Both, both versions, if you can still find the, um, and, and notably in uh, Spanish as well. That's right. I forgot that. Yeah. Very cool. Our listeners can't see it. I have the Sibley Guide to Bird Life and Behavior. It took me a while to realize it's not written by David Sibley, even though he co-authors some of the chapters and he does the illustrations. That it's- is mind-blowing. I actually did not even realize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, because it's it's the, the cover is made to go with the Sibley uh, Field Guide. It, it is by a number of different field ornithologists and uh, bird experts. I think we started out on this topic because we were talking about there are a lot of handbooks around. Mm -hmm. In my mind, when I started building my collection, I was thinking we need comprehensive book to give us background. And I was looking at textbooks. I don't have a textbook on my shelf, and I always think I should have one, but they're very pricey. Um, in fact, I think students don't even buy them anymore. They rent them. 
Uh, the Simply Guide to Bird Life and Behavior is probably um, as good as a textbook, if not better. It's done in terms of bird families. Mm -hmm. uh, it does have a first part where it goes over bird biology, anatomy, evolution, general behavior principles. And then it focuses on families with each family chapter being written by a different expert. For example, the seabird chapters are by Ned Breakling and uh, Alec Human, and you can't get better authors than those. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think we tend to focus a lot on the specifics of birds. You know, field guides, we focus on little um, field marks mm -hmm. and, and species. And a book like this guide gives us a bigger framework in yeah. which to place the individual species. You place it in the family, you place it in terms of conservation, and it ultimately helps us be better at identification, but it helps us just know what we're looking at and appreciate it more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you get to the idea, when you talk to some really, really skilled field birders, their whole birding the whole, the whole idea of birding is very holistic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just the field marks that you see; it's the habitat you're in, it's the time of year that you're that you're out in the field. It's it's all these things that sort of coalesce together to make an identification. And field guides, of course, tend to focus on the very practical field marks sort of things. But mm -hmm. thinking about birding in this kind of broader sense is really useful, both you know as you become a more skilled birder and just you know, to get more enjoyment out of birds, I think. And, you know, you can't be exactly. Sibley as an editor, if not an author <laughs> and an illustrator, <laughs> for sure. I, I do need to add, this book was published in 2001. Mm -hmm. So the taxonomy and the naming right. is out of date. I doubt if they'll be coming up with an updated version, because probably yeah. their response would be just check the online database, Birds of the World. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm <laughs> just <Yeah>. getting that in. <laughs> but the core is still the same. You know, birds yeah. turn, still build the same kind of nests and uh, warblers still go through the same, well, more or less the same migration paths. The mm -hmm. core behaviors and anatomy are the same. And the book is filled with um, Sibley's illustrations. Yes. Yeah. I have this one too. I've had this one since college too. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you get a lot of use out of it? I, that's kind of why I, I mean... Right. Uh, let me put it this way. I could and I perhaps should refer to it more often. <laughs> yeah, but fair enough. I mean, it's just it, it's a great it's a great choice as a classic. Um, there are other really good bird behavior books yes. like like Kreitzer that we mentioned as recent book. And there's another one from Princeton called Understanding Bird Behavior by Wenfei Tong. Um, so, but yes, this one's excellent. It's a classic. It's, it's really good resource. Yes. Yeah. You know, sometimes we, I, I, I've, I've written a book that's sort of a beginning birding guide too, and mm -hmm. sort of, and, and there are lots of books like that out there and you sort of wonder, you know, how, what can one person say that someone else hasn't already said? I think that's sort of a, something that a lot of authors <laughs> go through, especially authors of, um, of nonfiction, but you know, it's all about connecting with that one person who tends to see things in the way you do, right? It's it's about, you know, maybe maybe Sibley's guide, and far be it for me to say that someone might understand my prose more than David Sibley's, but um, maybe it didn't connect in some way. There's There are other vehicles for that sort of information that might make more sense to you. And it's always nice to kind of mm -hmm. have that out there. And it can still be a successful book, even if, uh, you know, even if you've already got the Sibley guide or whatever. At least that was what I told myself when I was writing that book. <laughs>
someone, someone well, was, will get something. What's out. the name of your book, Nate? It's called <laughs> A Beginner's Guide to Bird Watching. It came out on Page Street Publishing. Um, geez, like 20, 2017, 2018. And it, I don't it's remember. It's a really exactly. good book. Yes. Yeah, I, I know you. the name, of course. I just wanted you to say it. <laughs> I don't. Pu- I don't push my own stuff nearly as pr- often mm-hmm. as perhaps I should mm-hmm. in in my own podcast. Um, I'll talk about one off my list that I um I get a great deal of uh, enjoyment out of recently. I'm going to grab it because I know Frank, you have it on your list as well, and it is one we have talked about here before. So maybe we don't need to repeat what we have said. All the birds of the world by um Josep Josep uh, de Hoya and Links. My God, like what an amazing accomplishment. What an amazing project. What a fantastic book. Yes, it's expensive, but you know, you're getting 10,000 plus birds out of it. You know, the bird per <laughs> dollar ratio is quite good. Um, but it's, it's just a fantastic book to kind of to flip through whenever you're feeling like you want to see some, some birds that you've never heard of and could not possibly have imagined. It's it's a fantastic book and I, I I love it. I still love it. I still think it's one of the one of the great ornithological accomplishments, publishing accomplishments of the last two decades. And where do you keep it? Do you keep it? Uh, on it's on the bottom of my bookshelf because if I put it too high, the bookshelf will fall over. Right. It's in danger of falling over because it'll be too top heavy. It's a very heavy. It's a very heavy book, as you would expect with a book that has so many birds in it. I've only had this for, I guess, a couple of years, but I do use this book a lot. I referred to it while I was editing the most recent um, issue of, of birding. It is my go-to place for sifting through different taxonomies and figuring out yeah. which of the four major ornithological taxonomies are, you know, like, is this bird considered a species or a yeah. subspecies oh, or whatever? Yep. It's It has a nice little system it's it's like a circle with like four quadrants and it's just very quick and easy to 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 get to just see that stuff real fast so it's a great resource um for that and I, and i use it for that somewhat frequently so, sometimes for like actual work and sometimes just you know the question pops in your head you know eh, did this get split or not i mean eventually it's going to be more out of date but it's really great yeah. it's really great if you move with it i imagine it would be a potential problem it's it's very large and heavy but Man, all the birds in the world. How can you say no to that? <laughs> we back around to Frank? Yeah. Okay, we did all the birds of the world. That's great. Here's an example of one that I just I just really like this book. It's from the National Wildlife Federation. It's called Where the Birds Are, the 100 Best Birdwatching Spots in North America. So North America in this book is um, it's Canada and... The United States, not including Hawaii. I think Alaska is in here. Yes. There's a similar book from National Geographic. I have it here too. It's called like uh, Birding Hotspots of the United States. But that one's just the US. What I really like about this one is it's got some Canada coverage. Mm-hmm. And I just, there's just something about that, how some birding, like cool birding destinations that are like really far north. Cause like that's one thing about the ABA area that I don't think. Maybe Canadian birders think about this more than than Americans do, but the ABA area is like a huge percentage of the ABA area is this very sparsely populated, almost like wilderness. And there's just, that's like percentage wise, a huge part of the ABA area. Now, sometimes I find myself wondering like, man, what's up there? You know, like what would be like to go birding in like the Northern. A lot of of nesting shorebirds and uh, nesting waterfowl. (laughs) Yeah, just, I don't. 
but like a Not lot a of them, everything, you know, like those places have so many birds yeah. um, <laughs> during the breedings. I don't know. I just, I just. And a lot of daylight. <laughs> yeah. And a lot yeah, of black flies. Right. <laughs> and what's there in the winter? I mean, like, yeah, you knows? know, it's just, I, I just sometimes do fantasize about like what it would be like to go birding in those really, really um, remote northern birding destinations and and the book does have some coverage of those places so it i just like to flip through these kinds of books and yeah. even though the information is out of date and it's it's one of the, it's it's the kind of genre of book that's been undermined a lot by the internet so <laughs> as birders we have we have access to the information more easily through internet websites and stuff like mm-hmm. that and databases but uh it's still fun to see how an author conceptualizes um, these sorts of things. And, and I, I just like this one. It's, it's always fun. And, and I forget things about it. And I look through and I'm like, Oh, what was that place in like, uh, the Northwest territories? So anyway, <laughs> they're also great for uh, prompting, um, uh, arguments slash discussions about what constitutes the best place Aye. to go birding. Uh, cause sometimes there's some really wild, like what, what is going on places in those sorts of books. And, you know, mm, yeah, we all have our kind of ideas of what are the best places for us and sometimes that has to do more with like just great memories or great experiences yeah. that we've had more than whether or not they're actually great birding locations there are a few places that are definitely kind of widely acknowledged as being fantastic places it's always nice to read people's uh perception of those i haven't read that i think this is the one i have on reserve through mm. um <laughs> the library ebird uh not ebird <laughs> ebook (laughs) i've had it i've had it on reserve for months so a lot of people must be reading their one ebook copy (laughs) um but i had on my original uh list of five a category uh which was like a field guide or a where the birds are guide to a fantasy place and Mm -hmm. i removed it because frank had this book on it and i to me, it sort of serves mm. the same purpose. And just what you were saying, Frank, sometimes it's just nice to look at these foreign places or incredible birds and dream about seeing them. You know, sometimes it's a possibility, sometimes not. But I do spend a lot of time like looking at bower birds and I'm into mm. Australia these days. So <laughs> I've been looking at Australian mm. field guides, the hundred best bird watching sites in Australia. I think everybody mm. needs that some sort of dream to aspire to. For yeah. sure. For sure. And Australia is a good one. A lot of fantastic <laughs> birds there. And that's big. So is too. there a book, a hundred best bird watching sites, sites in, Australia? in Australia? Yeah, it yeah. is. It's not okay. a great reference book. Um, it's more written from the author's point of view of visiting it. I like that because it sort of sets me daydreaming about what it would be like to be there. I'll jump into uh, the next one down my list. Um, these are these are two books that I purchased relatively early uh, when I started getting back into birding really seriously. I, I consider them together because everyone considers them together. They are identification guides, but they are the sort of identification guides that uh, are almost, they're intense. Uh, almost exceptionally so, almost too much. Uh, <laughs> but there's still a lot of really fantastic information to be gleaned from them um, if you want to get them. And I'm speaking, of course, of the pile guides. Mm. Uh, big big pile uh, by Peter Pyle. The the Banders Dictionary, the Banders Guides, that's what they were originally written for, um, mm-hmm. to be a resource for people who are having have birds in the hand. Um, and most of us do not have birds 
in the hand, but there is a lot of really useful stuff about difficult bird identifications, about mm-hmm. subspecific variation, about mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of really interesting stuff that you can find in the pile guides. Um, it's very dense reading. It is uh, a lot of, uh, you know, um, abbreviations. It's a lot of uh, line sketches, um, but it's just such a, um, a fantastic way to look at birds in a way that a lot of birders don't necessarily do. I talked about birding as a holistic exercise. Um, this is almost exactly the opposite of that because this is all, all yeah. figures and charts and measurements mm-hmm. and, and all the very, very precise uh, ways that you might, you might identify very difficult birds like impidinax flycatchers in the hand. Mm-hmm. Um, I, they're, they're just really useful to have around. I have um, Sometimes I go in there and if I have a difficult impid um, that someone has photographed here in North Carolina, I'll pull that out and try and mm-hmm. like look at the look at the primary spacing and stuff like that. It's it's got really nice illustrations of that sort of stuff. It's it's re- they're really great books and um, they're they're a lot and you sort of know what you're getting. But um, man, when you need the pile guide, you need the pile guide. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no other book that's gonna that's gonna give you that sort of information and that sort of specificity. Yeah, I find them a little scary. <laughs> they're a little scary. They're a little scary. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it is true that. Of all the references we'll probably talk about today, it is the one with the steepest learning curve for being able to use it. However, uh, it's worth it. The information that it has just (laughs) you just can't fake that. I mean, it's like it's it's like that's that's it. That's the reference. That's the book. I mean, and like I mean, I think you said most of it, Nate. I mean, it's it's really for um, like bird banders and people who have birds in the hand. uh, That's what it's that's the core intended audience but you can really get a lot from it from other uses and even just for more um casual but serious birding so mm-hmm. it's it's really once you're ready for it it's it's really an indispensable resource yeah they're they're very dated um so the taxonomy is a little um behind the times but bird measurements don't change so <laughs> the the length of a, a primary on an acadian flycatcher is not going to change all that much in the in the interim and uh, well, I don't know, maybe they will. Maybe that's evolution at work. But uh, for the most part, for the most part. And Peter Pyle is an editorial consultant for Birding that's Magazine. Right. So he does occasionally write for Birding. And when we have really advanced ID type articles, he usually looks at them. It's funny because Peter Pyle is actually really, he's been on the podcast before. Um, he's actually like just really good at explaining things in layman's terms as well, in addition mm, to being mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. hyper-specific and hyper-scientific. So that's quite a skill. Okay, you skipped over me, Nate. Oh, no, Donna, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was just okay. so excited to get to the pile guide. I know. <laughs> Donna, you'll get to go twice before I go again. No, 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 no. <laughs> no we'll, just, we'll just switch. So anyway, my next selection is Birds and People by Mark Packer, which is a, another big book, though not as big as the Lynx book and a heavy book. Uh, it's a book I probably would not have read if I had not reviewed it for Birdie magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an encyclopedia of the intersection between birds and people. So it's about birds in art and religion, uh, mythology, literature, film even. It's just all the ways people look at birds and incorporate it into our culture. It's text, but it's also wonderful illustrations. There's uh, photographs they took for the book, but also a lot of photographs of older paintings and tapestries, um, sculptures. And I surprisingly use it a lot. 
Hmm. Um, Interesting. Just because of the way my mind works, um, sometimes uh, I'll be thinking, why are people so nuts about owls all the time? So I'll go and read <laughs> about all the different ways owls have been incorporated in cultures around the world. It's and true. Get mm. some insight into that. Some of the only Stone Age illustrations of birds from the Paleolithic are owls. Mm-hmm. Wow. They're the only birds that the people drew. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. It's also um, things about birds in our culture that you don't uh, immediately think of, like cockfights or uh, using falcons for hunting, mm-hmm. um, doing the falcon hunting in some of these really remote places. They have incredible incredibly beautiful pictures and accounts of it. Again, gives you the larger picture and something also to think about when it's not migration season. Mm, good good summer read, you're saying. Is it a beach read? It's a beach read. <laughs> it's a big book. Yeah. It is. Between that and the Lynx books, I'm like, I'm going <laughs> to be building like walls of books in my house. I know. <laughs> yeah, I look at I look at photos of, of houses with built-ins and I think, oh man, that would be a great place for all my bird books. <laughs> yeah, but you really, you know, library stacks are really built like iron girders and then they build the <laughs> building true. around them. Right. It'd have to be a bottom floor sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so uh the next one I have is is probably the best example of a book that is uh pretty outdated now, but it's just really made a big impact on me and I do still look through it sometimes more just for fun than anything, but it's America's 100 Most Wanted Birds, Finding the Rarest Regularly Occurring Birds in the Lower 48 States states by Stephen Ludenow and Michael O'Brien. So this book, like, I got this book when I was pretty young birder. Um, I was on a family trip and we went to like a nature center and I saw it in the, in the, on, you know, for sale in the, in the, the little nature store. I just wanted it. I, I like, and, and it was a damaged book. And it wasn't like, you know, sometimes you go to a bookstore and the book is like damaged, like the cover's all slashed up, probably like whoever opened the box with it, like slashed with a box cutter by accident. And it's like not in good shape, but it was still kind of expensive. And my parents were kind of like skeptical. And I was like, no, I need this book. And so <laughs> it, it, it was like, it's really fun. It's fun in the same way we were talking about um, how you know, the best birding sites lists, like 100 best birding sites in, you know, X area are fun um, because the author selected 100 birds in America that are like the hardest birds and really the hardest in the sense, it, they're like code twos and, and some code threes, some of the easier code threes. It's kind of mm-hmm. how they constructed it. And I used it to find some hard birds. Oh, like really? for instance, yes, Um because I grew up in Miami and I definitely found shiny cowbird by, you know, huh. using this book. And there were some birds that I did not find using because it has it's it's really very much written for an audience of like advanced birders. Like hmm. if you want to like really build your ABA area list, I don't I don't remember if they use the term ABA area or not. But if you really want to build your list and get the really hard birds to find in the U.S. that are, um, you know, found at least, you know, once or twice every year you know, go to these places. These are the good spots. And, um, I remember trying to get a white cheeked pintail a lot cause they recommended, I think it was like Westlake in the Everglades. And I, I think, I think after the book was published, I think it was published in 1996 and I probably picked it up in the late nineties. That kind of stopped being a good spot for them. I did hmm. get that bird later in, in Virginia key, but I, I spent a lot of time in the field <laughs> using the instructions from these authors 
mostly for the South Florida specialties hmm. with some success. So it just, it just, it was kind of like the thing that made the book exciting was like the hundred most wanted birds. And it's, it's so that was kind of like, okay, if you buy this book, this will like shape the course of your life. Like maybe you can get all a hundred <laughs> over the course of your life. And I, yeah. I, whenever I get one, just for its own sake, I, I check it off in the book. <laughs> Even though this is really quite an outdated book now, yeah. Um, so and it's out of print. <laughs> yeah, it's it's similar to a book I know you guys are going to talk about anyway. Um, yes, <laughs> but it it's so it's kind of like in some ways a, a precursor to that. It's a book of dreams. Yeah. Right. So this just I just really love this book. Um, and yeah, it impacted my life in a significant way. Hmm. So um, yeah, I, these books always felt like sort of magic to me. It seems it's not, I, I'm not right, super right. familiar with the with the book uh, itself, but I know you know the the lane guides, the famous lane guides that came out and then mm-hmm. kind of peaked in yes. the 90s and early 2000s uh, that were published by the American Birding Association that were essentially like go down this road. Mm-hmm. Look at the fourth fence post on the left, and there will be, uh, I don't know, like an up one sandpiper sitting there or something like that. And with a rem- remarkable amount of like success, like, like with foresight. But that's how birds are, right? They, they frequently mm-hmm. are in the same places at the same times. They're very reliable that way. To be able to think as a young birder, because I, I got the lane guides when I was a young birder too, um, mm-hmm. that, that it was that easy <laughs> or that like those birds were that accessible. Um, I can see why. I can see why it was so influential, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've gotten a third of the, the birds. So, oh man, I've gotten thirty three. I'm looking at the table of contents on Amazon. It's it's interesting how many of these birds are still the most wanted birds. Yeah, yeah it's, it's still it's, difficult. They're like yeah. like that. Some of the really hard owls are on there. Those are some of the easier ones. There's a lot of pelagic yeah. birds that you know if mm. someone's going to find find it at some point in the year. It's pretty amazing. Um, Hey, the, you know those two names that wrote I it definitely dipped on a bunch too. Yeah, <laughs> those two names on it are you know Steve Steve Mladenow and and Michael O'Brien are still producing mm. um, both birds and things yeah. to read about birds. Two two of the top birders then, two of the top birders still to this day. You know, mm-hmm. thirty years later. Mm-hmm. So this one is very it's a sentimental choice for me. Definitely influenced <laughs> the arc of my life. <laughs> but it's it's also within, as I said, it's the book of yeah. dreams. Sometimes, especially in the last few years, we need books yeah. like that to keep us I'm looking going. at the Amazon reviews, and one of them was, like, not happy because eBird subsided a lot of the uh, interest on those birds. But, you know, eBird, eBird, yeah, for a lot of the birds, yeah. eBird is extremely useful. But, like, it doesn't give you the specific information eBird doesn't that a lot of these books do. It doesn't tell you how to look for that boreal owl. It just tells you where right, one was right. seen, like, six months ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, mean, I think we all know this, but like what always happens with or often happens with eBirds when there's a really good bird is like one of the first checklists, someone, a really thoughtful birder will like do really nice instructions. <laughs> but then once a lot of people have seen the bird, it's Continuing. hard to find that checklist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Donna. Next is the Peterson Field Guide to Bird Sounds of mm-hmm. Eastern North America or oh, Western yeah. North America, depending on where you live. Um, this I see as being a companion to your uh, field guide. Of course, field guides cover sound, but we've discussed this book, I think, on these these book clubs in the past. What Nathan Peeplo, who has been a guest on the podcast. He has, went very early yes, on. Done here is he covers the variety of sounds each species makes 
and provide spectrograms. Now we also have Merlin, which I've started using in the field because I'm a terrible ear birder. <laughs> and between Merlin and Merlin this book, yeah. <laughs> I feel I feel like I'm finally understanding what it's like to listen to birds and be able yeah. to identify them. I just see this as being the maybe like a also a book companion to Merlin because mm-hmm. uh, Merlin gives you these spectrograms. So and Merlin isn't a hundred percent correct. Maybe ninety. Yeah, 95? yeah, yeah. Eighty-five to yeah. ninety is what I would peg it at. Yeah. So right now I'm doing a lot of beach birding, and I'm really working on increasing my recognition of is that a Foster's turn <laughs> or a common turn? They have a lot of different vocalizations: yep. greater yellow legs, lesser yellow legs. So these are the tools I see myself using to increase my knowledge of your bird. Yeah. And one of the things I love about people as book is that, you know, we already have this, this standardized language when we talk about bird physical identification, like where the parts of the bird are and how we talk about birds. We don't have that for, for bird vocalizations. <laughs> like it's all over the place, which is fun sometimes, but also can be kind of, you know, mm-hmm. an issue for birders who are trying to learn it. And uh, I, I really like that that Pipolo really tries to establish that language, that common language when talking about bird vocalizations so that we can all, you know, talk about the same thing in the same way, uh, which, is, which right. is really is useful. Is it a keer or a key? Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually was fortunate enough to meet him. We both were presenting at, at a conference and it was more like a, a, like a book club summit and uh, in West Virginia. And he's a genius of, of bird sounds. He knows so much and he's a great presenter. One of the things that he, I remember him emphasizing in his talk was that if you want to make contributions to ornithology as an amateur, you know, in scare quotes, birder, if you focus on recording sounds and uploading sounds, there's still a mm-hmm. lot to be discovered, even about common backyard species. Yep. Um, and so that was, that was, um, something that he emphasized a lot that was interesting to think about he's just he was he's a really nice guy he's really tall (laughs) um i remember we were we were we went birding and uh, like we heard a brown creeper together i i heard the brown creeper but he can't hear brown creepers anymore (laughs) and so i was like we have a brown creeper and he like whipped out his phone and he put on i don't remember which app it was maybe it was merlin i think it was a different one um and he was looking at it and he looked at the spectrogram and he was like, yep, brown creeper, I got it. Because <laughs> he was like, he was like, can recognize yeah. um, what the way the sound looks like. So he is just a really cool guy. Yeah. Huh. I'll, I'll move on to my next book. And this is one that I, I love very much as a lover of birds and language. I don't know if this one is in print anymore, but I first discovered this book when I was doing work at the, um, at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in the Bird Lab. But they had an amazing library, as you would expect from a museum. And I was drawn to this book like a moth to a flame. And it is um, The Helm Dictionary of Scientific Bird Names by James Jobling. And it is essentially a dictionary of uh, all the different scientific names for all the birds at the time when it was published, which is still pretty up to date because bird scientific names don't change all that much, at least the individual words in them. It's, it's just definitions. Like what if you've always wondered what, say, cardinalis cardinalis means, Go to the seas, look up Cardinalis, and it, and it tells you. I learned so many cool tidbits about ornithological history, about Latin and Greek in this book. 
you know, no pictures, no anything. It's pretty much wow. a straight ahead dictionary. Um, mm. But it is fantastic. It is one of the best books I have ever purchased, enjoyed. And I'm happy to say for people out there who may be looking for it, it's actually online for free. And I'll put a link to that oh, in the show notes. Nice. The entire um, bird dictionary is that he just put it online for free and you can use it to Sweet. search uh, whatever bird names you want. Um, I still like, as I said earlier, the feel of, you know, the book in my hands when I'm talking about it. But it's fantastic. Um, great book for anyone who's interested in what those scientific names mean. That's awesome. That one was not on my radar, but it sounds yeah. great. I, I really like the books like that about common names, of which there are many. Mm-hmm. There's some subtle differences between yeah. them. Um, I, I don't really have one that I like more than others. They're they're all interesting, but I did not know about that one, Nate. Yeah, great. it's great. It's one of my favorite. Whenever people hear about it, they're always very excited about it. it it's it's fantastic. Actually, you're talking about um, bird books with common names. There's a new one coming out by Susan Myers. Um, mm-hmm. It's coming out by Princeton. That's going to be out um, this September. And I just downloaded the PDF. There you go. Now you've got it too. It's that yeah. easy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it's great. You're gonna lose. You're gonna lose some hours in there, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> I could get it in all different e- ebook formats too. There you go. <laughs> I could read it on my Kindle. Yep. Frank. Yeah, I got one more. I'll 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 try to be fairly brief. It's um, the world's rarest birds by several authors: Eric Hirschfield, Andy Swash, and Robert Still. It's 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 a really nice book. It has the aesthetic of a coffee table book. It has really mm-hmm. beautiful photos. And some sort of like 3D renderings of birds, especially if they're really, really rare birds. It's just a very cool book because it has really rare birds that some are, it's not even known if they still exist or if they maybe even ever existed. It organizes them by continent. So it's just really fun to look through and see what are the most threatened and rarest birds around the world. And of course, there's some travel fantasies ensue. But uh, like with many of the other books we've talked about, but it's it's a really nice one. I really like just looking through this sometimes and learning about some of the the world's rarest birds. So great book. I I actually have this one on my bookshelf as well. Yeah, Mm. me too. And I thought it was interesting because the world's rarest birds came out, or at least I got copies of that. And the next book on my list, which is also (laughs) on Nate's list. Yes, Rare let's do birds it. of North America, which is a totally different take on rare birds. That's right. I like yeah. uh, vagrancy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Donna, I'm glad you put this on there. This is probably my the book I use the most. Me too. It's not a field guide. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Rare Birds of North America by Steve N.G. Howell, Ian Lewington, and Will Russell. So why do we use it? Nate uses it because he has to keep track of all these rare right. birds. It's amazing. It's amazing. It's so much information, so much context. You want to explain what, what you can find in there? I mean, it is essentially a book of all the unusual vagrant records in the ABA area for the mm-hmm. most part. And it's got, I don't have the other books next to me. I have this one next to me. Um, and I've actually, actually write in it all the time whenever yes. a new record comes up. I've yes. filled but my my copy is filled with notes in the in the margins. But um, uh, it's it's a summary of all the all the records. It's got context from Steve Howell and Will Russell. It's okay. got um, you know field tips, um, notes on vagrancy, amazing illustrations by Ian Lewington. I have an original Ian Lewington downstairs mm. uh, of the of the Zenos petrol from this book. 
Um, I I love this book. This is one of my favorite bird books. Yes. Of the last, I don't know, maybe of all time for me. This it's it's it just scratches an itch. That it's, I and it's really not love. just the content; it's just very well organized. Yes. Very readable. It has just the right uh, balance of illustration and tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, one came out this year on Vagrancy, which is also a great book. Yep, Alex but, Lee's book. Yep. Yeah, and it sort of supplements it. Mm-hmm. But this book, if you love to know or even chase rare birds in uh, North America, you need this book on your shelf. Absolutely, and and it is somewhat dated because it came mm-hmm. out a few years ago, and there's a lot of records that um, are, are not in this book. But still, even with that, and I, I actually talked to Will Russell at the Biggest Week in American Birding. He was there, and I I chatted with him briefly, and I told him how much I enjoyed his book. And I asked him if there was going to be a second edition coming out. And he mm-hmm. said he's not sure, but um, uh, it's just uh, it's it's so it's so good. It's so good. I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I I started uh, annotating it too, uh, but yeah. I I sort of there isn't enough room to annotate it. That's, it's, I'm running and, out of room. I know, and it doesn't have a stellar sea eagle in it no it does not <laughs> so we need no. another entry <laughs> yep but i think uh steve howell is too busy writing uh field guides and in creating his own taxonomy to update yeah this <laughs> yeah right. if someone is interested in birding like in the sense of like rare bird chasing and stuff it's it's essential it's just essential um, I don't really have too much more to add. Um, I'll give a shout out to the fifth book on my list, which is uh, Ken Kaufman's Advanced Birding, um, which when it first came out in the mid 90s was just such a, a revelation. It was essentially like mm-hmm. breaking down those difficult identifications of uh, some problem problem groups in North America. He has a new new edition that came out not all that long ago that is also um, very good. Uh, it's got color photos and stuff. They're the old one was just uh, Ken's line drawings. Yeah, exactly. With, with the beautiful Blackburnian warbler on the fr- on the cover. Another great book to have on your shelves um, if you're yes. looking for those difficult or those difficult identifications of uh, of ABA area birds. Yes, uh, I originally had this on my list, but um, when I saw Nate had it on his list, I put in instead a. Uh, of a yeah. Feather, A Brief History yep. of American Birding by Scott Widensall. Because uh, again, I think we need the broader picture and we need to know where we came from, where all these bird names came from. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from Audubon and Wilson, who who are the people who created birding? Yeah. And what I like about this book is he talks about the women as well as the men. Like he has a lot on Lucy Audubon. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> who sat home and <laughs> who who not only sat home, who created a place so John James Audubon could do his stuff, but also other women who contributed to our history, like Florence Merriam Bailey. Oh yeah, um, the author of the very first field guide. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. How mm-hmm. many people know that name? Yeah. Rosalie Edge, who founded the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary. Uh he mentions Debbie Shearwater, one yeah. of our modern day uh yeah. heroines. We don't have enough histories. We need more. For sure. And talk about a book that could uh, use an update, too, because a lot Mm -hmm. has happened since he wrote it. Um, History Mm -hmm. keeps going. It does not stop. Who better than Scott Widensall? Scott, if you're listening. Yes. (laughs) I know you've got enough on your plate, but uh, if we we might just kindly ask for one more thing. (laughs) Okay, we want Will and Steve to update the rare books of North America. All of these books need to be updated. Of a feather. (laughs) 
No, but I, I think we, what we have here is a really great selection of books that provide a lot of value to a birder looking to build out their birding library from beyond the, the field guides and, and bird finding guides and stuff like that, which are sort of the core of any birder's library. Thank you so much, Donna Shulman and Frank Izagiri, um, both of whom's work can be found in a lot of different places. Donna on 10,000 Birds, Frank in the, in, the, in the pages of Birding Magazine these days. Um, we'll have a link to all that stuff in the show notes in addition to all the, all the books that we, we talked about and mentioned here in this place. Thank you so much. This was another great uh, Birding Book Club. We'll have, to, we'll have to do it again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, all the magazines, all the way back to the beginning of the ABA, discounts to partners like Beautyo Books and Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and opportunities to travel with us like coming with me to Panama if that's something that floats your boat. You can get information at aba.org slash join. Special shout out this week to Manuel Dominguez of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you, Manuel. Really appreciate it. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who wonders if any of those birders in Puerto Rico got a cell phone photo of themselves with an elfin woods warbler, you know, the rare and exciting selfie woods warbler and technical production is by john lowry whose own attempts to find the cuckoo in puerto rico were denied by the bird's ability to simply seem to disappear only realizing later that he was following the puerto rican wizard cuckoo additional help comes from david hartley and greg niece who think the puerto rican oriole pales in comparison to our more stunning aba area orioles it's mostly black with some yellow highlights more like puerto rican boreal if you ask me you find us online at aba.org and on social media most everywhere as American Birding Association. But on Twitter, we are at ABA. Did you know that the scientific name for the Puerto Rican toady is Totus Mexicanus, which means from Mexico, because ornithologist Renee Lesson screwed up and wrote down the wrong location for the type specimen, a mistake that still to this day rankles Puerto Rican birders to no end. You might even say that they totally learned their lesson. Questions, comments, and come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>